Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I are automotive journalists, and we're also very good friends. Uh, in fact, I'm such a good friend that I let Ben plug a couple of his recent publications right now at the top of the podcast. Go for it, Ben. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. And there's actually something I wanted to say about publications this week, if that's okay with you, Sammy. Um, yeah, this is your time. Use it wisely. So uh, one of the magazines I read a lot when I was younger was Automobile. And I, I always appreciated the writing style and kind of the different perspective it had. And then um, I eventually started writing for Automobile two or three, maybe four years ago. It was a dream come true, if I remember. It was a it was a really cool moment. Um, but Automobile lost its 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 uh, hardcover hardcover its hard copy you know physically printed edition uh, two or three years ago as well, and a lot of its operations were folded into Motor Trend, and it became kind of an online only operation. And I continued to write for them online, and then this past week they lost their URL. So if you go to automobilemag.com. It no longer loads up automobile. It, it takes you first. It originally just took you to motortrend.com. Now it takes you to motortrend.com forward slash automobile mag. And they, there's still an automobile banner there. But as far as I can tell, most of the content now is coming from the Motor Trend side of things. And I know that there's there's been so much content sharing between the two sites um, over the last few years. It's not really a surprising thing, but it is kind of a landmark, I think to have this the the publication lose its print print operations and now kind of be almost completely folded into Motor Trend as a subsidiary. So while I understand why it's happening, I just kind of wanted to, you know, note that this had occurred and it's sad that uh the market for magazines is such that, you know, Automobile no longer had an audience that could support it. So just wanted to commemorate that and uh say that it was a very cool magazine. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed and still enjoy writing for it when I occasionally do. Mostly it's on the Motor Trend side these days. But um, I guess a little bit of a salute to to Automobile. All right. I dig it. Um, it is a sad thing to see it go. But you know what's not sad? Our podcast most that, of the time. That's true. Our podcast still has its own URL. Still semi-independent, I guess, from the mothership, Sammy? I mean, unless you came from our other uh, automotive podcast that has become redirected into the unnamed automotive podcast. To People be don't fair, realize we had a name a long, long time ago before <laughs> we were podcasting. To be fair, Nordine Defense Dynamics is pretty hands-off in terms of what we do on the podcast, so thank you for your support. But this week we're talking about the same vehicle, actually. In fact, I love it when we get the, um, the same car to discuss and to compare our notes. This week it's the... Jeep Wrangler Rubicon, It's uh, the trim level is 4XE or 4XE. I'm not quite sure the best way to pronounce it. It's definitely 4XE. I don't think anyone has ever said 4XE until this morning. 4XE. <laughs> 4XE, like, Foxy. The yeah, Foxy exactly. Wrangler. Um, which is to be um, – the best way to describe it is an PHEV or plug-in hybrid version of the Jeep Wrangler. But the I think the more precise way to describe it is it's a Jeep Wrangler – with an, with an electric powertrain, and the two really don't seem to operate that well together at times. Well, it's an interesting vehicle because there's it's, it's really limited uh, in terms of its utility. This is The battery gives you 21 miles of electric driving, and 
Um, a big part that's of the freedom, man. That's just pure free uh, freedom from zero emissions. emissions, zero emission freedom. That's what it is. Yeah. So the the reason why it's such a limited, like I would say, kind of forty miles is probably the the. Yeah, the sweet spot. Yeah, that's what most plugins are giving you these days. But mm-hmm. the problem is the Wrangler weighs fifty three hundred pounds. In that's it. I thought it would have weighed at least fifty four hundred. Seven hundred pounds of that is battery, pretty much. Wow. I think it's like five hundred to seven hundred extra pounds for the depending on you know your options and stuff for the plug in model. So when you have all that weight to lug around, it's really hard to have a good electric range. And this this is also reflected in the uh, MPGE for the vehicle. It's forty nine MPGE, which is not that great. Just not good at all. No, and if even you, though that thing, even though that rating system MPGE. MPGE, like, really doesn't mean much at all. Super confusing. Kind of only useful for comparing one plug-in to another. Everywhere else, it's just really hard to understand. Yeah. But if you if you, get rid, if you get rid of MPGE and you just look at miles per gallon, combined with the battery empty, um, mm-hmm. and you're just kind of using it as a normal hybrid, it only gets 20 miles per gallon combined. Not good. That is not only not good, it is actually worse than a number of other versions of the Wrangler. Like, if you just get the, um, like, this, the plug-in is only available as a four-door, so yeah. automatically there's a bit of extra weight. But if you get, like, either the V6 or the Turbo 4 version of the two-door, both of those are, like, better in terms of overall miles per gallon okay. than the hybrid. And again, the reason for that is weight. It's so heavy to drag around this battery that it's negating the effects of the hybrid unless the battery is fully charged. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about what kind of what kind of performance you can get out of this thing. Um, because I wasn't so disappointed with the fuel economy, mainly because I, I did charge it as often as I could, um, and I tried to utilize those 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 powertrains as as smartly as i could but uh under the under the hood of this thing we've got the two liter turbocharged four cylinder that's paired with an electric motor combined we're talking about 375 horsepower and 470 pound feet of torque which is actually quite a lot of torque i think it's almost as much or the same as the upcoming v8 version of the wrangler yeah it's exact it's exactly the same as the 492 for sure so um what do we what my 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 experience with this thing um, was actually surprisingly positive because I'm usually quite critical on the Wrangler experience. I find that these vehicles can feel a little uh, unwieldy. They they succumb to everything that you can feel. Everything on the road, um, they bounce around a little too much. They waver a bit too much. Too much body roll. But I just found that that maybe it was the added weight or the the confidence provided by that instant on torque from the electrical motor. This felt a little bit more confident um, in my in my experience here. Well, I like this drivetrain a lot because the two liter four cylinder is my favorite drivetrain for the Wrangler. Right. I think it's great in just straight up non plug in form, um, especially if you get the two door, the l- little bit lighter. It's uh, I don't I don't mind that it's automatic only. That doesn't really bother me because the the manual transmission in the Wrangler is not really great. I mean, it's fine for doing stuff like off roading where you're not going to be shifting on all the time. But in regular driving, it kind of falls down and it's it's not an amazing experience. But Sammy, I didn't really have the same kind of extra weight fixes everything experience. I found that this vehicle displayed. All of the things about the Wrangler that if you didn't like them before, you're not going to like them now. So it, it did okay. – for me, it, it did kind of you know wander around on the road. 
It's uh, it's rough riding in certain respects. It's just as loud inside. I mean, even in electric mode, <laughs> there's a lot of like uh, wind noise, for example, yeah. and no- we, tire noise. I had the Rubicon version, yeah, which, me too. which has the big knobby tires, and those make a lot of a lot of noise too. I think that the Wrangler is. If I never had to drive it on the highway, I would like it a lot more. Um, if it was just around town where I was only using the electric engine. Uh, this vehicle would kind of make sense. But as soon as you take the Wrangler on the highway, it's like, unless you're off-roading this vehicle, you are going to be irritated by its personality. That's really interesting. I found the extra power made it a little bit more enjoyable on the on the open road, on the highway or the roads, um, a little bit better for me. Um, I was surprised by that because I immediately expected, you know, another big vehicle, another big, um, and, and honestly, like you said, loud, um, cumbersome-looking vehicle and... It it didn't really knock me that that badly. I didn't feel the same the same criticism that I always felt about it in the past. So so talking specifically about the battery, it's a seventeen kilowatt hour battery. Yeah, it's located underneath the back seats, and a lot mm. of the other stuff that's designed to kind of support the battery, like the you know the, the wiring and all that stuff, they tucked it up inside of frame rails. The whole idea was they didn't want to sacrifice anything about the Wrangler. In terms of capability, ostensibly this is a kind of this is a Jeep that you can beat on just as hard on a trail. You won't, you know, the approach and departure angles are the same, ground clearance is the same, all that stuff is identical. You can even shift it into four low while you're on battery power, which I did, yep. which is fun. Uh, it's it's meant to completely mimic the experience of a gas powered Jeep, just with a lot more power or a lot quieter, depending on whether you've kept the battery charged or not. But when you're driving around on that battery. It goes so fast, Sammy. Like it's yeah. I had so when I picked up the battery, when I picked up the Jeep, it was it was the battery was at zero percent, like one percent. Oh. I, I know the computer maintains a certain amount of charge in the battery at all times. You can't go below one percent. But uh, I had to plug it into a bunch of charging stations, and here's where I encountered some of the same problems I had with the Mach E that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah. So, oh no! Well, I I plugged it into one charging one a charging station that had given me trouble in the past. I plugged it in, and the station said that it was you know connected. My app said it wasn't, and in fact, my app didn't even tell me I was being charged. So I I went grocery shopping, which was just down the block. Came back, unplugged it, and it actually given me like thirty percent range, which worked out to something like nineteen kilometers, so maybe like twelve miles okay. from from zero, and. I had a similar experience with another charger that I used where it connected, but again, wouldn't communicate with my app, wouldn't tell me whether I was actually being charged or not. I had to rely on the light that's attached to the charging point on the post and the one on the side of the car. So it, it, no, there's a charging. There's a light on the dashboard. It's like four four lights or something. There's also one right beside the charging point. Oh right, like it, it it cycles in kind of a weird circle. Uh, and or sorry, not a circle. That's that's the uh, Maki. This one has its little squares, and it rotates right. through colors. And once it gets to a certain solid color, it tells you it's charging. But it's like, why do I have to go through all this voodoo and not even like the frustration of dealing with public charging infrastructure is very yeah. real. It's awful. It's really awful. You cannot. I I'm gonna reiterate. I think I said this before. You cannot um, live with or or deal with the EV ownership experience or PHEV ownership experience. Without having a charger at home or the opportunity to charge at home. It yeah, just does not – it falls apart completely if you're relying on public chargers. But the funny thing, though, about plugging a Jeep in in public is you oh, get, it's the best. Crazy you get the best reactions. Yeah. Like, people 
they, they, it's almost like, you know, you could buy those fake charging ports online and attach them to the side of a vehicle and then you can just use the, the charging stations. That's, wow, that's okay. Okay. That's well, maybe cool. you don't do it, but you can, if you go to certain parts of eBay or the dark web, you can get these, these accessories. And it's, it's, I guess if you want to be the ultimate jerk and take over these parking spots, but that's how people look at you when you plug in a Jeep. They're like, they this isn't real. It. Yeah. It's like it's like a Halloween costume that you've put on your Jeep. And I had a lot of people ask me questions. Like, I had no idea there's an electric Jeep. And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's sort of electric. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to say, really. Um, I managed to get about 40 kilometers out of a full battery pretty consistently on, uh, in this vehicle, uh, which is about 24 miles. And um, I as well managed to plug it in, in public charging inf- in infrastructure. And you're right. Like, when you plug it... Um, and a leaf shows up immediately after they they eye you like you're out of your mind like <laughs> how dare you and then they they see you like unplug it or plug it or check the app or whatever it is and then toodle toodle away in like pure ev mode it actually it it is a very endearing uh situation to be in and i think there's something about it that just makes me like that adds to the ownership experience so what? as people get more comfortable or or uh, you know they it is a showy car in that way. Yeah, right? well, I mean, it's a showy car in the sense that it's a very in-your-face vehicle, especially the it's Rubicon. Too, right? Like, it's massive compared to anything else that would be in these EV charging Yeah, cars. just wait until, you know, the, the electric F-150s show up, and then, like, yeah. the true the, the true culture wars will begin as <laughs> the early adopters of the electric world begin to confront people who just, just happen to buy an electric pickup and don't have any politics associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be It's going to be very interesting from that respect. Uh, I, I didn't have as good an experience as you at, at eking mileage out of the battery. And the other thing that bothered me about the Wrangler was it was impossible for me to charge the battery using any of the driving modes. So, Oh my god, the driving modes were awful to me. Um, so you, there's, this, there's two things you can do to try and put energy back into the battery, like with any yep. electric car. And there's this thing called Max Regen. It's a button on the center stack, and you push that, and it, it gives you kind of a one-pedal mode for the Wrangler, where once you lift your foot off the gas, it clamps the regenerative brakes on okay. really t- really hard so that you can generate power and put it back okay. into, the, into the battery. Wait, wait. This button is the is the most nondescript button. Yeah, it's it like it's just... got a blue font, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it just looks like a battery with, like, uh, with a circle around it. I found it by accident. <laughs> you find it by accident and i don't think there's like a i if there's a notification or an icon that shows up it's extremely subtle like you just like is it working i don't know uh and you just like press it and you're like i don't know what that did let me hope that this is what i'm hoping the, the for. electric operation is equally subtle so there's like there's three <laughs> there's three buttons like so this max gen button max regen button is on the center stack right and then to the yep. left of the steering wheel on it the is. dashboard yep. there's three other buttons one of them is just hybrid one says electric and one says e-save and when you push those there's like a little notification on the dash at the bottom left that will mimic your choice to let you know so like you have to know what mode you're in. But the reason I'm mentioning these three modes is because hybrid is just like normal hybrid. gives you, you know, max power kind of deal. Um, electric keeps it on the battery at almost all times. I Even when I put my foot to the floor, I know I had read that foot to the floor engages the gas engine. I didn't really have that happen. Did that happen no, to I you? No, I didn't have that happen either. Um, not that I remember. I, and, I, and I did take it on the highway in that EV mode, and it felt uh, it felt pretty strong there. Yeah, but so, that e-save button, 
I don't know what's the story on this thing. So eSave is supposed to do one of two things or two of two things. You can actually have it do both. The first is it kind of cuts you off from the battery so that let's say you're on the highway and you decided you don't want to use the battery. You want to save it for around town driving later. You can just yeah. drive around on the gas and in, in normal hybrid mode without grabbing from the 17 kilowatt hour battery. But it also has a function and you can choose this on the center stack. There's a little section that, that yeah, allows you to. Yeah, it, it, it configure the e-save. It will charge the battery uh, as you drive. That is a lie. It it, it it does not work. Did it work for you? I think it did, but I'm going to say that this is the worst part of the car, unfortunately. It's e-save mode. I don't I think it doesn't well, I don't think it actually works. The first time I used e-save, I exactly as you mentioned it, I was on the highway, I said I don't want to use up all of my electric um battery uh sopping up these miles unnecessarily. I'm going to put it in e-save mode. I put it in e-save mode and the tachometer still reads zero. I'm driving and the tack still says zero, which means either the the engine is not on and I'm running on the electric motor or not or the system is broken. Like and- I was so confused as to why this has happened and I didn't know what to do. I toggled it on and off. I I accelerated as much as I could in traffic. Like nothing was really making sense to me. No, and when um, I I had specifically configured my e save to charge the battery, and it was at one yeah. percent when I did this, and it never went above one percent. Never. I drove for like an hour. Uh, most of that was on the highway, but some of it was around town as well. Nothing. Even with like you know the gas engine trying to charge it, plus the brakes trying to charge it, it never ever took a charge, and that was really frustrating. Uh, if that feature doesn't work, just don't include it. You know? My experience with the e-save when it was trying to charge again was like a like I I, I guess it worked every fifty per every like other time like I don't know what it was but <laughs> so when it's it like did, a roll of the dice yeah and when it did it made this really um, like it, it basically pegged the electric motor I mean the gas motor at a like consistent um, speed when you weren't when you were like stuck in traffic or something a little bit higher like a than high normal. idle yeah it felt like that and it sounded like I that. never it didn't got that sound to very, it didn't sound very appealing, and it sounded like something was not going very well with the with the vehicle. I I, I want to backtrack a bit to what you said about the tachometer. There's something else that's weird about the gauge cluster on the Jeep, and that's you don't have a traditional speedometer. Like the the where the speedometer normally would be, it's kind of it's a power gauge, and it it has a section. Oh, right. It has a section for charge, which is I guess when you, you know you're braking or whatever, and then it has a section that above that where the needle goes to like thirty percent, fifty percent, whatever power level that you're at. The, the the speedometer is digital and at the center of the dash, and you can get rid of it if you if you don't want to see it. But it's it's kind of strange because I don't ever need to know what percentage of power I'm generating from the battery or from the engine. Like that's entirely kind of a a extraneous to the side fun thing you would put on the infotainment screen, not on the gauge cluster. Like just give me a regular speedometer, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, the model I had had that power retractable roof. Did yours have that too? Yeah, it did. And what did you think? I, I remember you being kind of, um, kind of impressed with this feature in the past. Does that still hold? I mean, I, it's fine. Uh, if you want to remove the roof, I, can you still do that with the, with this feature? Yeah, supposedly you can, but it looks way more complicated uh, and convoluted than, you know, if it was a hard roof, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's also a lot heavier because you have the motor up there. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, the things I don't like about it, and I mentioned this in the past, it's unpainted. Like right. the interior. So like you have whatever color your Jeep is. I believe mine was, I can't even remember. <laughs> I think it was red <laughs> with blue. 
Great um, work. <laughs> yeah, it's only been a week or so since I've driven it. But uh, the reason I mention that is because it, it's, it's like a white, unfinished fiberglass, right? And it really stands out against the the paint of the Jeep. So, like, I understand that, you know, it's a feature that is only going to be seen by people who are sitting in the back. And it's, but still, like, it feels unfinished to me. Um, the other thing about this thing is it's not really happy if you try to close the roof while you're driving at highway speeds. Okay. Like, it kind of tries to close, but I guess the wind pushes it back and it just gives up and you have to push it a bunch of times. I don't know if there's, like, a minimum or a maximum speed to be, for, for it to be using it. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. If, did you have that experience with the roof? No, I I closed it in at a stoplight or something like that okay. every time when I was at a stop. I'm sorry, I didn't push. I didn't push the limits. Well, no, I mean, if it rains while you're on the highway, you're gonna you know you're gonna push that button, right? So, and I think that's maybe why I managed to get more um, range in the vehicle because I actually had really good weather uh, throughout the whole the whole week I had the vehicle. Um, and I never, I never found myself, you know, dipping into AC or anything like that. I just dropped all the windows and pulled back that roof. Yeah, but if you, if you had all the windows down and the roof open, you're, you're creating a lot of extra drag. So, well, that's how I did it. I mean, not like it's hard to create drag with a vehicle that has the aerodynamics of a boot, you know, like it's I don't think I made worse. I don't know if I, if I ruined the, might have improved uh, it. Yeah, maybe that was my theory. Um, Overall, my sentiment, um, I, I'm, I'm growing to like the, the Wrangler more and more, maybe more and more, I, the more, I'm, more I drive it. But I found that this powertrain, despite that extra weight, despite, you know, this is also a little bit more expensive. What did you say the price was, like 50 grand? Or it's 55? about 50. For the Rubicon, it's 53. Uh, yeah. For the base version of, I think it's a Sahara trim for the uh, vehicle, it's a, just under 50,000. And there's a high altitude trim for 55. And then you can add a bunch of options. Like I know. Oh, you, you definitely will add. There, I don't know if there is such a thing as a non optioned out Wrangler. Like. They all come with stuff, right? Yeah, so you can add a bunch of stuff. It can get expensive. I mean, it's already expensive to start with, but it has a $7,500 federal tax credit if that works for you. That's um, You know, evaluating this vehicle, for me, Wranglers, I like the two-door. I like the two-door with the roof down. That's And you like the four-cylinder. Yeah, and I like the four-cylinder. I mean, but what's interesting about Wranglers these days is if you think about it, like, if you go back 10 years ago, the Wrangler had like one terrible drivetrain, right? Like it was a really thirsty six cylinder, wasn't that great. Um, and then over the last decade, it's it's got a turbo four, it's got a turbo diesel, it's got a V8, it has a really good V6 now, and it's got a hybrid. So like in this a very short span of time, the Wrangler has dramatically diversified its drivetrains. And you add in the fact that you can get a pickup, you can get a four-door, you can get a two-door. This mm-hmm. The family of the Wrangler has grown just as impressively. So, okay, but just because there are these options, as we just said, it's not like the options are good. Like, these are – like, this hybrid version of the car, uh, of the Wrangler, is like it's – it's good enough. Like, it is a it, – it's very odd to describe it as like a – do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if this is the best application of PHEV. Of course it's not. It's, it's not the like, best application of anything. I mean, the every Wrangler... time the first of all, every time the motor pick kicked in, you noticed. Every time you tr- it turned off, you noticed. Yeah, but the Wrangler is not a smooth vehicle at all. You know, so like but, that's very in character with the experience uh, of driving it. Then, like the e save button was like random. It's like everything about this vehicle seemed like so haphazard or unrefined. But what I'm saying is, but I don't. Uh, it, yeah. 
I don't think that there's a market for this vehicle. I think it's a very, very small niche. But it's interesting that Jeep is choosing to target these niches because I don't think there's a niche for diesel either that's necessarily larger. Um, or the V8 model, I think that, you know, the people who traditionally buy Jeeps, they're not necessarily looking for huge power from a V8. And the diesel is, it's nice to have, but it's very expensive. So I think that also rules out a number of traditional Jeep buyers, but it plays to a certain part of the demographic that might have never considered a Jeep before. So maybe the plug-in Jeep pulls in people who are like, you know what? I kind of want to greenwash my daily drive <laughs> and I can, I want to be able to drive in the HOV lane and it's I want to barely, be able to get this parking. It's bar- like that, that 20 miles of range is really, it, it is not worth, bo- it's not worth both boasting about. No, but it, you'd have to have a plug at your destination and at right. your home. Like that's the only way to make it practical. But the, but rag- then- the Wrangler is not a practical vehicle to begin with. It's a vehicle for people who love to go off road and they want a factory solution to do that. Okay. And then, I don't know. You might be wrong because according to a recent press release, this Jeep is saying that they're selling a lot of these 4xEs, making it one of the more popular uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles in its segment. And that doesn't surprise I don't know if that means Okay, in its segment, it's one of one. Or in its marketplace <laughs> is, what it, is what they describe. It, it doesn't surprise me that brand new Jeep sells well in its first three months on the on the market, yeah. right? Like that's Compared to the Mitsubishi Outlander PHEV, which has now been... It is now being outshadowed by its prettier gas-only version, and then the the Toyota Rav Four Prime, and I think there's a plug-in Escape as well. well I, I'm sure that there is a a niche for this product, but it, it remains a niche. And the Wrangler is a niche vehicle to begin with. I mean, it does very well for mm-hmm. FCA, but it's not a mainstream vehicle in the sense that you know a, a commuter car is or a family SUV is. It's still it, it it still has a very specific audience and it's done a very good job of maintaining that audience over the years. And that's one of the other weird things about the PHEV is that so much of the Wrangler's image is wrapped up in being a simple, um, mechanically simple vehicle that can take a lot of abuse. And there's absolutely nothing simple about this plug-in hybrid. Like it is the most complex Wrangler ever. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something to consider if you're looking at this vehicle. Like, do you want to trust that this thing is going to be as tough as it needs to be? Um, and do you want to risk more expensive repairs in the future versus the kind of... I, I know that the Wrangler is only has an image of simplicity at this point. I mean, a lot of it is right. basic. Like, you have the body on frame, you have solid axles and that stuff. But there's a lot of tech in there, too. But the plug-in really, really amps that up. Absolutely. Um, one more thing before we finish, the, we close the book on this um, on this Wrangler... Uh, earlier this week, Jeep announced, or uh, earlier before the podcast, Jeep announced that they're going to try to get a plug-in hybrid or electrified version of their vehicle in er- of every vehicle that they own, which is which is quite the statement. Um, and they also announced that the upcoming, did I get it right? The Wrangler, not the Wrangler, the Cherokee or the Grand Cherokee L, whatever it's called, Grand Cherokee L, I think. I think it's just be- the regular Grand Cherokee. Yes, yes, the Grand Cherokee 4xE is coming as well. So we're seeing we're seeing them trying to devote or dedicate their their way here um, into getting these these vehicles electrified. And honestly, I hope that it's implemented a little bit smoother and more refined than the Wrangler, because the Grand Cherokee is not um, it doesn't have the same character right as the Wrangler. And if it is as um, inconsistent in the operation of those three modes, this will be frustrating. I think. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens when it gets here. 
Absolutely. All right. What else do you want to talk about, Ben? Well, there's a, a, actually a book that I wanted to talk about this week. It's uh, called The IROC Porsches, The International Race of Champions, Porsches 911 RSR, and the Men Who Raced Them. It's uh, written by Mark Stone, and it comes out on um, uh, Quarto, but uh, specifically Motorbooks. Um, the cool, I, I don't know, are you familiar with IROC, Sammy? I'm only vaguely familiar with it, and I just want to – in my experience, my understanding is that IROC, the International Race of Champions, is essentially a motorsports all-star game. Like, that's the best way I describe it. we got people from all kinds of racing um, disciplines coming together in one – in kind of one, you know, special event, right? Yes, and uh, it was originally conceived to be entertaining. Like, it was uh, put together by Roger <laughs> Penske and some business partners in the 70s. And uh, a lot – most people are probably familiar with IROC because of Camaros and mm-hmm. the IROC Camaro that came out in the 80s. The, the A lot of the IROC races were – even from the 70s to the 80s were done with Camaros. Uh, they were supposed to be identical cars. And it was more of a, it was supposed to be a test of the driver's ability, less so um, engineering of the vehicles. And then they eventually went to Dodge Avengers in the in the 90s and things kind of fell apart. But the first year that they did IROC, it was just Porsches. And it was done because, so of course, the book is fantastic. I just want to say right off the bat, this book only looks at that first season. And in the first season, they raced uh, a series of heat races in one weekend at Riverside, California. And then they had like a, a championship race at Daytona. Okay. And um, there were, it was a who's who of races at the time. Um, the, the winner, ultimate winner, no surprises here, was a Roger Penske's driver, Mark Donahue. But I mean, Peter Rebson, Bobby Unser, Dave Pearson, AJ Foyt, Emerson Fittipaldi, Bobby Allison, Richard Petty, all these guys came from NASCAR, Can Am, um, and uh, Indy, uh, or at the time was called USAC uh, for mm-hmm. champ cars. And they, they went head to head. And uh, this, this, First season look is amazing because Matt Stone goes behind the scenes in terms of how the series was developed, but also he looks really deep at the Porsche RSR, that that version of the 911, why it was built, and it's the book is just filled with crazy photos. Like one of the hardest things I've discovered when um, I've researched classic motorsports right. is photography is hard to come by online. It's yep. just difficult because a lot of that the imagery was never scanned or it was uh, put into image banks that are proprietary and you have to pay to see them or pay to use them. So when you get a book, a big coffee table book like this, and it's even cooler with these Porsches because they were essentially Skittles colors. They wanted them to be really recognizable so you knew which driver was driving which color because there's no sponsorship, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it was – it's so cool to see these vehicles in action and from angles that I'd never, ever seen them before. Cool. Um, what is – so first of all, my experience with the the Race of Champions is that, Race of Champions, not the International Race of Champions, which is well before what I remember being these these kinds of things. Is there a big difference between IROC and the current Race of Champions? Uh, there is no current Race of Champions, I don't think. No, there is. It's There's one happening in 2022 at least, at least, I believe. Uh, in Sweden. Uh, as far as I know, the last IROC series took place in 2006. Right, that's racing... what I'm saying. The difference between IROC, which is the International Race of Champions, and then it's a current, a current like season or, or league called Race of Just Race of Champions. I think they're completely unrelated. I don't, I don't know anything about the other one. Okay, great. Uh, it sounds like it's the same thing because again, it brings in people from all over. Um, 
all over the motorsports disciplines, uh, Formula One, World Rally Champion, IndyCar, NASCAR, sports car, touring cars. Okay. Because um, I know IROC itself went bankrupt in 2008. Right. So that's what happened. They sold the whole series, like, piece by piece, all the cars and the equipment and memorabilia and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, Race of Champions is, I guess, a different promotion putting together a similar concept? Yeah, it sounds like it. And I used to really like watching these these kind of cars, these like custom versions of these race cars. Sometimes they had like these buggies or rally cars or whatever. So talk to me about what this Porsche RSR is all about. Actually, I'm just looking up Race of Champions now. It's been around since '88, and it was cool. just, it was uh, initiated by Michel Mouton, um, who was a a very decorated uh, rally driver. And uh, it looks like it's been going on a really long time. They, they race in very unusual parts, like Barbados and mm-hmm. and Gran Canaria, which is again, I think, <laughs> reflecting the rally roots of of the operation. So you're saying right. so the thing with the Porsches is the reason they went with these vehicles is because they wanted it to be a single mark race, um, but making that happen. They talked to a bunch of different manufacturers who were like, yeah, we'll build you a race car, but it's going to cost you a whole bunch of money. Like, because these would be one-off race cars that would have to be taken off the production line and then built to whatever standards they needed for safety and performance, right? Mm -hmm. But Porsche had been developing, like, RS versions of the 911 over the previous years leading up to – this is 1974 uh, was the first season. And they did some research – or sorry, 73 and 74 – um, they, they ran it across, uh, I think the first race was in October and then the championship races in February. In any okay. case, they looked at the Carrera RS4s, sorry, RSRs that had been built and realized that if they just purchased these directly from Porsche as though they were regular customers, it was way, way, way cheaper <laughs> than having a custom car built. And it would be just as good in terms of performance. Like Porsche had really worked hard on building. They needed the cars to be reliable. Right. And they needed them to be fast. And and in terms of reliable, they just meant like they could take abuse, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why they ended up going with them for the first season. And then I think the reason they went to Camaros in the following season had something to do with sponsorship. They were able to prove the concept was popular. And then GM showed up and they're like, okay, we'll, we'll play along. And, and then the cost for getting the cars was dramatically reduced. Right. It was like Camaros, and then I think eventually they got some Dodges. Uh, yeah, terrible, Dallas? terrible. Well, the, the, the Dodge that was at Avengers and whatnot, um, mm-hmm. it was the same chassis. Like, at that point, it was a tube chassis car, and they just put a different body on it. Okay. There's no and then, real difference in the 90s. <laughs> and then it became a Trans Am, I think, right? Yeah, again, like, Trans Am in name only, kind of. Although I think some of the later Trans Ams were a different race car build. Okay. Um, it just blows my mind because if you're telling me Carrera RSR, RSR Camaro, uh, Camaro uh, IROC, and this, these Dodge Daytonas and Avengers and, and these Pontiac Trans Ams, only one of those feels like and sounds like like the 911 is a it's an epic race car. Like it, it's won so many championships, won so many races, people race it around the world. It, how do those, you know, how come... I just it just blows my mind that the Carrera didn't stay on as this kind of um, vehicle, and then well, I mean the they're not going to stay. I mean, if they're not going to, if they don't want to sponsor, then obviously you go with whichever you know automaker is going to give you the best deal on the car, right? Because it's coming right. out of your own pocket, right? Right. I just, I mean, it just blows my mind. I think the nine the nine eleven or the Carreras are like are, ama- are are the pinnacles in some cases, some kinds of 
sports cars. Well, I mean, and don't don't, uh, don't count out the Camaro. I mean, the 1LE package that came out in the true. 80s, that was winning in SCCA. It was a very, very powerful car. You're right. There was a Daytona version as well. Um, but by the time they started running in the 80s, when they started running more of the, 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 the Daytona bodies and that kind of thing, they were doing a lot of ovals. And it was more uh, of an American-focused thing. Okay. So it wasn't really that um, that unusual. Uh, and and the, the series wasn't as popular towards the end in the 2000s as it, as it had been. Well, yeah. I mean, again, you have these cars way, way early on. And I don't know. I wonder if people took it as seriously back then as they do closer to the, in the 2000s or so. Well, it, they also had a better TV deal, I think, back mm. in the day where more people were watching it. I mean, motorsports on TV is hard to get even now. So unless you're watching something that's like super mainstream, you're you're probably finding some kind of specialized champion, uh, so some spe- specialized broadcast, or you're watching it online, right? Okay. So talk to me about these uh, career artists again one more time. Is there anything? What modifications they had? Um, you can buy these as a regular customer. So like, what is the story here? Uh, it. I mean, I I don't know much detail about the RSI what I read in the book obviously I'm not a huge right. Porsche aficionado it's it, it was a car that Porsche designed for customers to be able to take into motorsport um, but I, I'm reading now that because I was curious to see you know one of the reasons for the switch the drivers didn't really like them didn't like uh, the 911s no they didn't they weren't happy with how they drove uh, and they weren't very good on ovals and they wanted to expand to ovals to kind of increase viewership so those were two of the big reasons why they moved away from Porsche uh, and they, Penske already had a relationship with Chevrolet because he had been racing in Trans Am um, with Chevrolet, and then he left and went to AMC and the with the AMC Javelin, and they won a championship with that car. And so he was able to leverage that relationship to get them involved in IROC. Cool, great. That's a nice story. So, do you recommend this book? Who's, oh yeah, who's this. The... So this book is so detailed that there's a huge chapter that takes a look at each individual. RSR that was raced in um, oh that's the series. so cool and it does it's called car by car and it just looks at them all one at a time and tells you you know like all the details about them where they are now that kind of thing it's uh it's it's really neat I mean if you are an IROC fan and if you are a, more specifically a Porsche fan for you know of the 70s era 911 Porsche Motorsports yeah yeah this is definitely a book that you'll enjoy because just for the pictures alone it's worth checking out uh, there's so many cool shots of the cars in action, the cars being built, and the cars with the race drivers who drove them. And that, that's hard stuff to find. Um, it's 60 bucks. Uh, it's 192 pages. And there's, it says there's 200 photos. Uh, I, I'm sure there's more than that. Um, and it's, it's a really nicely made book, too. Like, the dust jacket is beautiful. But then you take off the dust jacket, and it's got, like, a really cool, like, 70s colored design of stripes with a, an embossed Porsche carved out of the, of the cover. And then the inside cover is like a repeating wallpaper motif of all of the different 911s that were raced. It's just cool. someone really put a lot of effort into this book. Of the ones we reviewed on the podcast over the last year, this is probably the nicest presentation out of all of them. Very cool. Um, I think that's it for this week's episode of the the podcast. Why don't we tell the listeners where they can find more episodes and how to get in touch with us? Sure. If you go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, that's where you will find all of our past episodes. You'll also find a link to uh, purchase this book if you want or just find more information about it and uh, as well as you know buttons to click on and subscribe using your favorite podcatcher we're everywhere we're on spotify amazon google apple all that good stuff you can either search for them right on your podcatcher or just go to our website and add yourself there 
Additionally, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that very easily through the website. There's a contact form there. You fill that out, and it lands in our inbox. If you want to be a little bit more personal, you can send us an email the old-fashioned way. It's, um, it's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, or you can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. Now, before we close up this week's episode, I also want to thank our contributors on Ko-Fi. This is Jamie E., who recently uh, sent us a, con- uh, a contribution. Thank you so much. If you want to do that, it's very easy. You just go to ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast. And you can send us a, a little donation, buy us a coffee or whatever. And we'd really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Ben, what are we talking about next week? Well, I'm going to be talking about whatever you're going to be talking about, Sammy. So why don't you bring it up? Um, I'm going to be talking about the Jaguar F-Pace, if that's cool with you. That's totally cool with me. And I've also spent some time in the Genesis GV80 and Acura MDX. I know we've talked about those cars a lot, but I did a direct head-to-head comparison. I think probably our listeners will know how that one will go. But uh, I'll spend a little bit of time to discuss those two cars um, and how they face off to one another. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care.